comic. Why so serious? What? I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger mission. Logic. Dance off, bro! Me and you! Comic. What? Logic. going to be a nuclear war. What if that's why someone wants us out of the way? So we can't do anything to stop it. <sighs> He's a watchman floating <laughs> in the sky. I can't believe they did that entire movie and didn't actually put life on Mars on there. Mm. That's like of all of like the really obvious polls that they could have done. <clears throat> and they actually have... Life, Bowie. yeah, like, they, they have Bowie there. in the beginning of the movie, but they and he's on Mars. <clears throat> but yeah, they they actually they use every other pop song on the planet, including ninety nine loof balloons, and do not uh <laughs> do not actually have Bowie's life on Mars. That soundtrack, oh my god, it's a bizarre one. Hey everyone, welcome to uh, Comic Book Logic. Hey. I'm your host, Joe, and with me is my co-host, as always, Kevin. It's our first one of 2016, <laughs> officially. Yeah, and we made it a doozy. And then the... The, the, the nine-hour studio <laughs> epic, Watchmen. <laughs> oh, the long, the Watchtower. Oh. The movie where, if you like hitting, hitting over the head with symbolism... This is the movie for you. Can I say that this is a movie that you, we pointed this out. We just finished watching it, uh, <clears throat> which was my first time watching the movie since we saw it in the theaters. IMAX. Did we see it together? I think Did so. you come with yeah, us? I, I couldn't remember so. if we saw it with you or not. Uh, for a movie that uses the word joke <laughs> no less than two dozen times, <laughs> this movie doesn't crack a single one no this is just brooding for with a character named the comedian no one is funny in this movie well i mean i i appreciate we can get into it there's a lot of things to appreciate but uh, the fact <laughs> there, that there you are, get yeah. the fact that you have a character named the comedian who's like the worst like monstrous character um who <laughs> rapes slash attempted attempts to rape several characters Ugh. Uh, yeah Ugh. Uh well anyway we're gonna start off we're gonna start off this podcast like we start off every podcast Kevin what do you know what did you know <laughs> about the comic book Watchmen honestly prior to seeing this movie when this movie came out in two thousand nine I had not heard of it at all um I tried I think to read it before the movie came out and I and I just couldn't get my hands you know I could have gone to the store and bought one but it was like one of those where someone was going to loan me one and then yeah. I just couldn't get my hands on it so we ended up going to see it didn't know anything about it hadn't seen any of it and then I did eventually read this comic but it wasn't until probably like within the year 
of this movie coming out. So sometime around 09 or, or, or 2010. And that's when I found out that the actual ending does not have to do with <laughs> nuclear weapons. It's a giant it's squid. Identical <laughs> monster. It's, it's a villain from the Power Rangers. No, so the comic, uh, the comic book Watchmen was created in 1986 by uh, famed wizard uh, Alan Moore, self-proclaimed wizard Alan Moore. <laughs> Uh, it was a deconstruction of the superhero genre. Now, I know a lot of people, and you say you read this comic. Now, people who don't know about comics, when approaching someone who knows about comics, says, hey, what comics should I read? And inevitably, there's that one asshole who gives them a copy of Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Watchmen is not a comic that you read. It should never, ever, ever be the first comic that you read. Yeah, It's a deconstruction of the superhero genre. You have to be familiar with the idea of what is a superhero and what does the genre do in order to appreciate what the comic is. I know that sounds like I got my head way up my butt on that comment, <laughs> but it's absolutely true. Yeah, um, You can't really... I don't want to say appreciate because you can appreciate it regardless, but you, it, you just don't understand it unless you reg- <laughs> unless yeah. you know the genre. Well, it's uh, watching. It's it's trying to. It's it's you know showing someone their first. This might be a weird. I'm going to join you yeah. with my head up my butt, but um, watching like a French New Wave movie, yeah, from like you know yeah. the early you know 1960 like a Godard movie, and you're like. Look at, you know, how the cut, like, you have to kind of have some degree of context of, like, oh, what were movies doing at that point? Oh, why was this radical? Why was this interesting? Yeah. The, it, the context is kind of everything. It's like if someone has never seen a movie before and they're like, oh, I like movies. What movies should I watch? And you show them Watchmen. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be no, if Watchmen was never. a good movie. Um, <laughs> uh, it's not that bad. Um, no, Watchmen was 1986. Um, so the basic idea of Watchmen is Alan Moore wanted to create this comic that reflected the anxieties of America at the time, 1980s, you know, in his world, it's the rise of Thatcherism, you know, this kind of neo-fascist movement in the 1980s, Republican sort mm-hmm. of uh, new dawn in America, a heat up of the Soviet, uh, the Cold War once again. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to take... Um, existing comic book characters and kind of show the mystery through them. DC, in realizing that any comic character that they gave Alan Moore would, uh, would, would they would leave them irreparably harmed, so to speak, yeah. because of the outcome of this comic, um, told him to kind of make up his own, his own superheroes sort to use. stand-ins yeah. for existing characters so the, in the, some way. The basis of the characters are based off the old Charlton comics, uh, which was a comic book uh, series that, you know... Long, long ago, 1950s, 1960s, um, characters such as Blue Beetle, uh, the Peacemaker, um, uh, so, the uh, Enchanted uh, Raptor, uh, uh, Captain Adam, ah. uh, the Enchanted Raptor, <laughs> um, the Flying Cheese, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, Peacemaker. I, I said a bunch of them. Paint already. Man. I just, one is like uh, one is called like the Traveling Wilburys. <laughs> the Traveling Wilburys. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, there's a whole there's a whole list of them, and I could probably f- figure out Charles and Chu. The the big one though is that, so the fact is is that DC Comics had bought these characters to use, and they were merged into the DC line during Crisis on Infinite Earth in nineteen in nineteen eighty five, and so um, Alan Moore wanted to use them. They said no, so he created his own analogous characters to them and put them in this alternate nineteen eighty five world where. Uh, Basically, superheroes, eh, not superheroes, but like costume vigilantes actually existed. Um, and this movie kind of plays homage to that in the first one. You gather around children. <laughs> right. um, when at the beginning, when you see 
the original Night Owl punching out uh, of, of pretty much a, a robber who's trying to rob this couple and a, their little son, which you basically you can see that they're coming out of the mo- out of the opera Deflator uh-huh. Mouse. Yeah. So you could kind of like, oh, that's Bruce Wayne's parents. So in this alternate universe, yeah. he prevents the birth of Batman. And so that's where you kind of get this this notion and it kind of spins out of control. It's a world where comics, comic books never focused on superheroes. Instead, they focused on pirates and westerns and things of that nature that were kind of pulpy before superheroes became a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's a whole deleted subplot from the from the movie about. Oh my god, they deleted a subplot. Yes, they deleted two subplots. How's that even possible? And one of them is the uh, the the comic, the tale of the Black Freighter, right? Which is they they show in like they show a young character reading it in the actual comic, and you get this idea of this man being alone in the world, and you know he's a, he's a victim of his own isolation and his own fears, and this it's, it it plays very much on what's going on in the in the right. actual book, but they deleted it from the movie itself. But it's it's a glimpse into what people are reading like what kids are reading at that time instead of superhero books and it's depressing <laughs> yeah yeah G- just glib like uh yeah. you know kierkegaard yeah. levels of <laughs> just like, isolation oh. and just... yeah well which is just kind of funny because when you look at what kids were actually reading in 1985 and 86 it was Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns and Christ yeah. on Infinite Earth, all these really bleak and depressing books that were coming out of the 80s for comic books. Well, I'll say that, you know, we, we, we sort of joked about this while we were watching the movie, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 it, it's always this thing that like art is almost always better when <laughs> there's a Republican in the White House. It's because, very true. You know, Nixon or, or Reagan or, you know, or even Bush in the, you know, the first half of, you know, like to, there's always it's something to rebel against. Yes, like '90s music was fine at the time, but it's doesn't hold up as well as no. I think some people think, and that's because you know everyone you was doing fine. What are you talking about? Harvey Danger, Smash Mouth, <laughs> Smash Marcy's Mouth. Playground. Don't put Let's Smash go. Mouth in the same conversation <laughs> as as Harvey Danger. Fastball. Speaking of, and we'll, we'll, and this will this will tie in later, but uh, I heard. Uh, I don't know when it came out, but I stumbled across just this week Smash Mouth's cover of Under Pressure. What? It All right. is. It's, is it everything I hope for more? Oh, it's one of the worst things I've ever heard in my life. Oh, man. So uh, just one last thing. Uh, I'll play I, a I, for you guys. I managed to pull it up really quick. The character. So, for example, the analogous characters. Um, the character of, of of Night Owl is based off Blue Beetle, the original Ted Cord Blue Beetle. Um, the, the comedian is based off Peacemaker. Rorschach mm. is based off The Question. And Ozymandias is based off of Peter Cannon, a.k.a. Thunderbolt. Ooh. That was the name. It was actually Peter Cannon dot 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 Thunderbolt. That oh. was the name of the comic. Well. Rorschach's Journal, October 12th, 1985. Dog carcass in alley this morning. Dire tread on birth stomach. This city's afraid of me. I've seen its true face. The streets are extended gutters, and the gutters are full of blood. And when the drains finally scab over, all the vermin will drown. The accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up around their waists. And all the whores and politicians will look up and shout. Save us. And 
I'll whisper. No. Come gather around, <laughs> children. It's high time and about slow motion and flashing light bulbs. Yeah, you know, if you speed up all of the uh, the slow motion scenes, this movie's actually only 13 minutes long. <laughs> it's true. Uh, so the movie Watchmen, it's it's a an attempt at a full, nearly full adaptation of a six issue comic book. <laughs> and it ends up being three hours long. Now, to, to be fair, we actually ended up... Uh, Watching it, it was twelve inches issues to be fair, and uh, and we watched the director's cut, which is a half hour longer <laughs> than uh, it should have been. Yeah, I I actually don't know if we had watched the director's cut because they sold me the wrong movie when I bought that's it. That's true. So we, you might, might, I, we might have just watched the original <laughs> cut. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't actually tell you. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, what was cut out of there? I can't imagine anything got cut out of that movie yeah. because it just kept going, going. And, the, and the length isn't a problem and obviously if you were going to actually you know faithfully adapt this story mm-hmm. you, you know you want a director who's not afraid in a studio who's going to let him um or her uh yeah. tell that story and and, and take their time and, you know and really dig into the characters and i will say that i did get a really good sense thanks to the length mm-hmm. and the time that it took of all of the characters here, the the core characters, yeah, but and there were a lot who were sort of left to the side. Unfortunately, I mean, there was, you know, I, 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 if it was going to take as long as it took, you know, the fact that it didn't spend enough time or as much time on the Minutemen and sort of the original incarnation of the Watchmen, yeah, there were a lot of characters you kind of saw for a second and then they kind of went away. Well, you uh, never got to see them today. It, it was just, it was very, like, we have no idea why Mothman went insane. Yeah. We have no idea why. Yeah, that's and that's what I was talking about earlier when we are talking about the deleted subplots. The second subplot outside of the Tale of the Black Freighter was actually... Um, uh, a documentary about it's called Under the Hood. Um, it was based on the novel it's like that the H1's behind the music. Pretty much, it's a novel based upon um, the original Night Owl, Night Owl One, as he is called. We see him briefly in the movie. He's talking uh, Mason Hollis, I think is his name, or House Mason. I can never. Get, it's one of those ones I can't get straight <laughs> in my head. Um, it, you see him talking to uh, to the to the new Night Owl about the, about the whole. You know, background, and it's, he wrote a novel basically detailing all of the exploits of the original, uh, of the original Watchmen, the Minute, uh, the what do they call the the gangbuster Minute? <laughs> it was the Minutemen. The yeah. Minutemen. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, but to see, because they play on themes of time the clocks and, and yeah. clocks and watch and minutes, and it's all yeah, yeah. See. Was, and that was interspersed throughout the comic books, and they deleted that whole subplot, but they actually released like a companion like yeah. documentary about it. Mm-hmm. And thank God they didn't fold it into it. Because, no, I, yeah. I know, and and it, and, it, and I don't want to. You know, obviously that would derail us even further. But again, you know, if you're going to have this movie that's that's approaching three hours long, and it, and from what it sounds like, the director's mm-hmm. cut is close to is over that. Oh, yeah. Um, then I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you don't at least spend a little bit more time on on some of those things. You don't show something and then kind of gloss over it, and then instead you spend just exorbitant amounts of time showing Doctor Manhattan making out with everyone. Yeah, that is really weird too. Ooh. But the um, so the basis of this of this movie is you're getting the history 
of these five main characters. You have Night Owl 2, Dan Dryberg, who, you know, kind of played by the affable Patrick Wilson. Patrick Wilson, who is this 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 guy who who just wants to be a crime fighter. He just wants to to fight bad guys. He wants to beat up criminals. He wants to be Batman, but he doesn't have the the kind of necessary drive to be Batman. He just he honors this memory of these costume vigilantes. That you also have uh, Rorschach, who is probably one of the most intriguing characters of this whole entire thing. Sure, that's the reason we kind of follow him for so long. Yeah, uh, played by Jackie Earl Haley, mm-hmm. um, coming back from uh, obscurity from his main roles in uh, Bad News Bears. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah, and then you you have uh, Ozymandias, played by uh, was it Matthew Matthew Good? Good. Mm-hmm. Now on Downton Abbey, as we learned, I guess. Yeah. yeah. He'd show up from time to time. You know, this, this, uh, the man who uses 100% of his brain, very much, you know, that mm-hmm. don't think. Smartest man. Smartest man in the world. Sally, uh, Lori Jupiter, who is the daughter of, of, of Sally Jupiter, the original, uh, Miss Jupiter, who's this, uh, kind of femme fatale. Um, and then you have, of course, Dr. Manhattan. Um, God is real and he is American. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you follow you you learn about their backstories throughout this movie. This movie takes a lot of time, goes back and tells in flash. Oh, and the comedian is played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan. So right. six. Um, his death spurs on the whole story mm-hmm. of who murdered him, and someone's out to kill the these vigilantes. Yeah, uh, long after they've ceased hung to be up relevant. The yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So so you have uh, the story as told in flashback of all six of these characters. It takes a very long time, but it's very detailed, and you get these characters become very well rounded mm-hmm. in within the detail of their of their past histories, with the exception of maybe Lori. She she's a uh, she exists to yeah be the sort of the 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 the, the love interest slash like inspiration the the motivation for you know certain things to kind of. Yeah, she, move on. She's like a linchpin for for Night Owl, um, Doctor Manhattan, and uh, um, mm-hmm. the comedian. All three of them they kind of have her in common, and they kind of work, right. you know focus around her like a like a like kind of like in her orbit. She is there to show yeah. her boobs, <laughs> pretty much. Played by the lovable Mal Ackerman, who I absolutely adore. Um, <laughs> Because she's on Children's Hospital. Because she's on Children's Hospital. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I was curious why, but oh, I, I think I, that's it. It was this movie. I actually, I really just fell in love with her. I don't know. I don't know why. Don't ask me. But whatever the fact. But yeah, so you follow these six characters and and their background into finding out the mystery of why was the comedian murdered, who did it, and what's going on. And in actuality, the plot is very very thin. Yeah, on that end, but it's the background. It's the it's the history of these characters spanning thirty years that becomes much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Because in this an alter, alternate future and in this alternate history, Nixon is erected, uh, erected, elected for <laughs> four. Well, he is too. Nice. <laughs> He's elected for four terms as as president. Um, he the v, the U.S. wins the Vietnam War and Vietnam becomes the fifty first state. The U.S. and the Soviet Union are on the brink of civil of uh, nuclear war. Mm-hmm. It's it's a mess. The world's a mess, and uh, and it's these six characters trying to find their way through this messy, messy world. Hmm. Uh, I I don't know <laughs> if you want to focus on anything in particular. Um. Well, why don't we start? I guess with 
Uh, let's let's just talk through sort of each of these characters a okay. little bit and kind of get a sense of of what we what thought, their story yeah. is and 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 why it was kind of told the way that it was told. I guess sure. Um, so Rorsch, well, the first one we see is the comedian. Yeah, the comedian who uh, you Jeff know, and, I, Morgan. and yeah. I appreciate the 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 fact that you would have you know that they would have a character, they would name him the comedian, and there yeah. would be this sort of gag that he's going to be like the funny one, you know, and then um, he rapes someone, and he's a monster. <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible monster. We don't really ever see him do anything good. <laughs> No, and that's the thing. In the comic, he's actually a pretty funny character. He tells jokes, and he's very flippant and sarcastic and that sort of thing. In this one, we just see him be a monster. Yeah. Um, he, he, you know, of course, he, he's the one that takes on the role very seriously. He's a member of the original Minutemen. He goes off and fights in Vietnam uh, on the side of the U.S. government. With a flamethrower. With a flamethrower. And he fights, uh, you know, he gets a Vietnamese girl pregnant. He fights alongside Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. Kills the girl. It's a really uncomfortable ending to M. Butterfly. <laughs> oh, actually, it's a more comfortable ending to M. Butterfly. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen M. Butterfly? <laughs> That's an awful, awful story. Uh, better than Miss Saigon. Um, yeah. Well, that's just a terrible musical. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, he, he's this, this terrible character, and he's he's very secure in who he is until... He discovers something, and that leads him to crack and break down, and that that's the reason why he's killed. A little bit more on that in a little bit. Yeah. But, it's of course, he's played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who does a very good job. I mean, his oh, character sure. didn't need a lot of depth in the movie until a little bit later when he has some softer moments, but he, by then you're just so like, ugh, he's such an yeah. awful person. Yeah. That you really can't, because, as I say, he does rape... Uh, Lori's mom, Sally Jupiter, or mm-hmm. tries to. He tries to first, and then there's sort of implication she, that they had consensual he, sex. They did, but again, it was you know, was it? I mean, how much was it just you know being sort of beaten down? Like obviously, yeah. Like you could only, a, yeah. Like she felt like she could only say no so much, right? And then you know, it's yeah. There's that implication to it, but it's that he's just this terrible, terrible character who ends up becoming and we find out is the father of Lori. Mm-hmm. Um which the comic handles a little bit better, but this is it seems a little I don't know the end well it's it's the held, end revelation. Yeah, yeah, it's held as this kind of big reveal, but it doesn't actually I don't know that it actually adds anything to the movie. Yeah, it doesn't really add anything to the character yeah. of of Lori, but it does kind of like the the notion that her mom, who is, I think, the most underused character in this movie, uh, Sally, and no one, that, at least in the comic, is has a huge part in it. Mm. She's um, a lot of it's through her eyes and uh, Hollis Mason. He he's a uh, he's also it's a lot of it's through right. his eyes. He's the under other underutilized see, character. I could see how that was supposed to be a um, a way of sort of reconnecting those characters because it's kind of shown that that they're not quite estranged, um, Laurie and, and her mother. But yeah, um, it's they, a you know she drinks her mother drinks a lot and she's kind of just like well I'm gonna go off and you know I kind of still want to do this thing and yeah I like how she's like she's like margarita mom it's two o'clock in the afternoon and Kevin's sitting there drinking a beer at noon just like <laughs> puts it down <laughs> yeah I, oh, never mind. <laughs> It's a Newton beer. It's awkward. <laughs> hey, it's the weekend. Yeah. It, it's like two degrees outside. What am I going to do? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you have this really, really uh, 
a strange relationship between the two of them and it it plays off well but the big problem is is that it's basically carla gugino and old face makeup <laughs> yeah. you know with mel and ackerman oh i'm sorry you know what i was exaggerating it's currently four yeah in chicago yeah but it, and carla gugino is an old face makeup because she has a couple flashback scenes where she's younger right. and it kind of makes you wonder like why did they have carla gugino play it in in the old age makeup versus Alan Mac- Ackerman who's pretty much like what like 6 years younger than Carla Gugino is <laughs> probably and so you lose a lot of that like weight yeah i think that's a big issue that they have and especially cuz you know Hollis Mason is is actually played by uh what's his name oh Scott something um but by a, an age appropriate actor yeah and it's kind of weird like why would they do that as opposed to the jarring makeup that they put on Richard Nixon. Uh, <laughs> Richard Nixon right. looked like a character from the Sludgehammer video. Um, <laughs> oh, man. It, it's just bad. Like, it was, it was, they'll eat me alive, Henry. Yeah. You know, it's just. With big jowls. Big jowls and, and, and he was a cartoon nose. character. Yeah. yeah. He, he, it was, he, He's no Frank Langella. No, he was no Frank, or, Yeah. Or or uh, Anthony Hopkins, <laughs> or the, Anthony Hopkins in yeah. the movie Nixon, Ke- or Kevin Spacey who will be playing him in the new uh, Elvis and Nixon. Oh yeah, that looks movie. That looks terrible. I know, but it looks like terrible in like a good way. Well, because Michael Shannon is, is playing, playing Elvis, Elvis, but Michael Shannon's a very recognizable actor, so it just looks like Michael Shannon wearing an Elvis wig. <laughs> it doesn't draw you in at all. Mm-mm. I, Super weird. It's an Amazon original. <laughs> so, you know, the budget was uh, yeah probably I, lacking. I think the best Nixon, though, the best on-screen Nixon, that's what it should have been our top three, is best top three on-screen Nixons. That's a good one. Yeah, that is a good one. Yeah. We'll have to hold on to that one in the back card. But I think my best, my favorite one is uh, Dan Hayeda from uh, from the movie Dick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, shut up, checkers are all featured to the Chinese. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so our night owl. Yeah, Sorry and then about we have Patrick Wilson. Patrick Wilson, our night owl. Um, let me let me pull up some of my notes. Just on being kind of, yeah, kind of dowdy. He looks like the guy from the Americans in one of his <laughs> costumes, like <laughs> walking well, around well, he, pretending to be an accountant. And the the in the comic, Dan Dryberg is is a slightly overweight. He's you know he has he's sexual impotence issues. He has erectile dysfunction, even though that wasn't a thing back in 1985. Um. Now but, everyone was virile. <laughs> or virile. <Some> Reagan years. <laughs> Everyone's eating McDonald's. It was a good day. Morning in America. Egg McMuffin in one hand and an M16 in the other. God bless it. Uh, God, the 80s were terrible. <laughs> um, born in the USA, blaring in the background. Completely uh-huh. oblivious of its message. Um, My dick screeches like a bald eagle. <laughs> Ted Nugent shooting flaming bows and arrows at speakers on stage. Now, Dan is, he's, he's overweight. And you could tell that he's, you know, there, there's, there was this keen act in the, in the movie, and they talk about it in, in the comics as well, where the superheroes had to give up their identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, they couldn't, there was, super, vigilantism was outlawed completely. Right. Why it was allowed to begin with, I don't know, but it was, it was made federally outlawed, um, pre- presumably after this, the riot that occurred, and you see, like, the comedian and, and Night Owl trying to disperse these protesters, and they're shooting, you know, uh, um, shotguns and gas canisters at them. And, yeah. And, 
You know, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's a hyper-violent world. Yeah. So, yeah, you have Patrick Wilson playing this character, which I think he does a good job. I like Patrick Wilson oh, sure. and just mm-hmm. about everything he does. He's, he's, he's really fun in this. He's a really good actor. Yeah. I, I just think he didn't get a lot of... He still looks like Patrick Wilson, which is a very handsome man, even though they tried to give him that weird, like, 70s Argo hair. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he's... He doesn't have that. You like of... my recasting in this case? <laughs> oh, good. We're, we'll get yeah. Okay, good. Uh, he yeah, he's pudgy. He's kind of he's supposed to be out of breath, but then he puts on this latex suit, and of course he's this superhero going. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, that was all built in. Yeah. That was not pure West, like uh, <laughs> no. like we talked about. That was definitely that was, the yeah. Yeah, he he's and he of course we have the the very famous you know, so Lori who is originally with Dr. Manhattan, leaves Dr. Manhattan and shacks up with, with Dan. He shacks up yeah. with Night Owl. She shacks up with Night Owl. And then they go on the, in order to kind of reestablish their virility as a couple, <laughs> go out to fight crime, and that re- that sparks their, their passions, and they have a love scene oh. to Leonard Cohen's 1984 uh, oh. Hallelujah. Mm. And, 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 and I love Leonard Cohen, and I can I don't, point to but... many... Very appropriate uses of Leonard Cohen in movies. Um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, of course, being one of my favorite. The soundtrack is all Leonard Cohen. It's wonderful. The guy who shot uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller just died, I think. He did, yeah. yeah. The cinematographer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wexler, I believe. I don't, right? know. I don't oh, know his name. Anyway. Um, yeah, we lost a couple of cinematographers, so if I said the wrong one. <laughs> sorry. But um, We'll do that in our immemorium. Yeah. Um it's so it's it's so, <laughs> it's so laughable. Good. Yeah. It's so uncomfortable and laughable. It's really uncomfortable because it's not a graphic sex scene, but it's a graphic sex scene. It's explicit enough. Yeah, it's just there's a lot of humping. All things considered. I mean, yeah, this is a you this see is a lot definitely of, a yeah. not not like a Marvel DC typical no. kind of PG-13 you see movie. butts and boobs and wieners and you see a yeah. lot yeah and i and i'm and i'm fine with that we're we're grown-ups here we can appreciate yeah. uh when it's done well yeah this i would argue was not done well it was it was it's jarring that's the word i put it's jarring you have i and i think that's part of the problem is is that you have these six distinct stories that yes they intertwine but they're so th- they're so thematically different that you feel like this is almost an anthology piece, and so you have this the the graphic rape scene of Lori's mom, right? And then you have this supposedly tender love scene between right, you know, or uh, yeah, between the, Lori and and Dan, and you're just like whoa, whoa, and then like it's you have this like kind of weird supposed to be funny moment where she hits the flamethrower right during <laughs> orgasm. Right. And then it's like, it shoots out this gout of flame. Like right as like he's singing hallelujah. And you're right. just like, but it's like, that's still pretty violent imagery yeah, in a lot of ways. And, and so you're like, you're sitting there going like, what in the world is going on? Uh, Zack Snyder. And yeah. It's like his treatment of women. It's, I don't know if it's necessarily treatment of women because, okay, we could get into to Lori's story. She has kind of the weakest story throughout the whole movie um, in that you don't really find out too much about her. I feel like a lot of her stuff is cut on the floor. Um, her mom is, is is more of her main story. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't really know who her dad is. Um, you kind of assume it's 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 Sally's account, accountant who she marries. 
um, what do you do find out as a comedian? She follows in her. She has a lot of mommy issues. Like mm-hmm. she, she was told to follow in mommy's footsteps, but she doesn't necessarily want to. Um, right, but she does want to. I yeah. mean, she kind of encourages Dan, Dan to kind of yeah. pick that back up again. I mean, he, you, you get the sense that he kind of needs it. I mean, that's the only way he can get, get it, it up. up. Yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. He's dressed up like an owl, um, which you know, <laughs> hey, that's a whole other series of issues that I don't know yeah. if we have time to address here. But uh, you know, working it, on my night owl. <laughs> Yeah, as opposed to a day owl. Right. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a night owl, I get it. There are day owls. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> so it's right. I mean, she's she it's present it's it's on the one hand you're saying, yeah, she's she's not she she says like, yeah, I I got kind of forced into this. I had to do this because my mom, you know, missed the glory days. Yeah. And then she, glory at this, the days. other time she, <laughs> Yeah, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to put all Springsteen <laughs> through the whole thing. Um, and then at the, at the same time, it's right. It's like, well, we absolutely, you know, this is the only way I I really feel alive is when I'm doing this, which, yeah. you know, has nothing to do with her, no. with her Dr. Manhattan storyline. It has nothing to do yeah. with the, the, the you, you know, you should come down and save the earth. Like, the, the the thing kind of at the crux of it, and maybe this is a good time to transition to Dr. Manhattan, yeah. uh, a.k.a. Billy Crudbump. <laughs> we see his Crudbumps, <laughs> both of them. There's no reason for any of them to do anything anymore because they have Dr. Manhattan, and that, he can just explode people well, with and, his thoughts. Yeah, and that's the but that's kind of what happens in the in the in the movie is that when Dr. Manhattan, who is you know, um, he's created in a lab experiment, something that's um, He's the only one who has yeah. like actual sort of powers and has a very sort of comic book origin as opposed to everyone else who just, yeah. you know, worked out yeah. a lot and well, yeah. put on a costume that had a theme. And he's he's creating a very pulp way. You know, Dr. John Osterman gets locked inside of his right. experiment. It's kind of like the Hulk in a lot of ways where yeah. he's vaporized and then he he re creates itself in, in a way that's in the comic the deal is very fun and not fun but it's interesting like his when he was younger his dad was a watchmaker and you see a brief glimpse of this in the, in yeah. the movie and he teaches him how to reassemble everything precisely the way it needs to be reassembled and so that's how he's able to bring himself back together um in the comics they go that the government tried to recreate this experiment numerous times and each person who did it never reappeared mm-hmm. he was a once in a light he's a once in a thing and it's because of his background where he learned how to put himself back together. Right, which ties into this idea of him as a god, where he, you know, this this concept of um, that some people have of um, of God as a clockmaker. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, so to make that character, you know, he's godlike powers, he literally comes from a clockmaker, you yeah. know, he has that ability. I, I get, you know, a lot of what they're sort of going for there, and it does tie together fairly well. Yeah, um, and once again, the notion of the clock and the and the doomsday clock, yes. and you know all of that stuff. Moore's pretty good. I, I you it know keeps right time yeah. keeps stopping generally right 
around the time of where the Doomsday Clock is. Yeah. So we, we get a lot of that imagery that, that works pretty well. Alan Moore is, is probably one of the best comic book writers out there. At least he was at the top of his game. Now he's all like into like, like it's all about mystical symbolism and all this. I live <laughs> in a cabin in Northampton. Blah, 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 blah. That's what he's kind of like now. He's like got this like crazy Charles Manson look to him. But he kind of knew what he was doing back in the day. He still, yeah. he still does in some ways. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they did uh, he, this idea that he builds himself together. And he, he's, he's not omniscient, but he can see his own past and his own future. And he can't see the future, so he thinks nuclear annihilation is going to happen. Right. Which is part of the reason why he can't see his future. So he's trying to create this alternative energy source. Um, he lives with, with, uh, with uh, Lori right now. Lori's his paramour, his previous wife. Uh, left him when he discovered when he discovered Lori, um, and then he's presented with the fact that both his ex-wife and his best friend died of cancer mm-hmm. uh, a couple years before, or are dying of cancer, or have died with of cancer beforehand. So he's questioning whether he himself gives people cancer, right? And it's kind of interesting. The it fact stands that- to reason, you know, the whole atomic. The whole powers thing. Never trust anything that glows, Kevin. That's what I've always learned. Yeah, I know. You tell me that all the time. <laughs> it's glowing. Go away. It'll give yeah. you cancer. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I come I come from Hegwish. It's everything gives yeah. you cancer. I'm probably dying of cancer right now, and I just don't even know it. But the there's there's this whole thing of, of him having to take himself out of the situation. When he's presented with this, he goes to Mars, and he becomes really, you know, navel gazing for like a good 20 minutes of the movie oh my god yeah talk about things that should have been cut <laughs> the, the whole mars sequence the whole flying around in a christmas ornament on mars yeah the whole like the whole frozen let's Just build a castle look look at how look at how well mars does and it doesn't have yeah. any life on it it's, how would it how would it do with a pipeline or a shopping mall it's yeah. like, eh, we don't know, because we don't have it here. Now, okay, did. guy from the arcade fire. Let's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not everything is uh, okay. anti-capitalism, anti-materialism, okay? Just make all the nuclear bombs go away. Okay, Zach De La Rocha, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get off your giant throne and actually do something for a change. <laughs> <laughs> the guy from the arcade fire. He turns to him and it's Dr. Manhattan playing a hurdy gurdy. <laughs> so, uh, all right, so let's talk about everyone's favorite character Rorschach. Uh, Rorschach's diary. Rorschach's diary. Rorschach shopping list. <laughs> Things to pick up from store dozen eggs, organic, <laughs> kale, <laughs> new issue of US. <laughs> The de- weekly. The decline of Western civilization. <laughs> Milk. Yeah, it, it's basically uh, Rorschach is is our stand-in for for William F. Buckley, nineteen eighties. Like yeah. all liberals are awful. Thinks he's in a noir. I thinks he's in a noir. Yeah, um, he's the most interesting character. Oh, regardless, sure. he's everyone's favorite. He's he's a he's a the son of a he's prostitute. Got the cool mask yeah. that moves around. The son of a prostitute. Um, Takes it upon himself to clean up the streets. Um, I don't think they go to it in the movie, but I know in the comic they go into the whole Kitty Genovese story about New York. If you, if, I don't know if you remember I, this. I don't remember it. Um, yeah, it was no. about a woman who was brutally attacked, and I think she was murdered in like the middle of the street, and she was screaming for help, and all of these people witnessed it, but oh, they, no one right. called the cops. Mm-hmm, right. Because they thought someone else would do right, it. Yes. And uh, I know he takes inspiration from that in the comics as part of his persona to do that. Um, just fantastic character. 
um, based off the question, which is uh, fairly similar um, in, in approach. But he, you know, his his whole thing is he never really gave up the mask when everyone right. else did. Yeah. He couldn't because it's his face. He refers to his mask as his face. It's He's a fantastic character. Yeah, he's Rorschach. Like, yeah. the person that he was. He doesn't have anyone to sort of go back to. There's no other sort of life. Yeah. That he could go and kind of build. He's completely damaged. Yeah. Well, Walter Kovacs, I think, is his name. Yeah. It's a good good Slavic name. You know, probably from, like, Croatia or something, Serbia. No. Uh, Or maybe Hungary. I don't know. Somewhere around there. But, yeah, he's he's this um, character, and he's eventually framed uh, for the murder of of Matt Frewer's Moloch, one of the villains from back in the day who kind of goes straight, but he's kind of wrapped up in this whole mystery that Rorschach is determined to solve. Um, Rorschach is set up for it. He goes to prison in probably the best scene in the movie where he's stuck in prison, being interrogated, not interrogated, but being uh, psycholog- psychologically analyzed by mm-hmm. the psychiatrist and just going through this whole thing of like, his like when Walter Kovacs died was the day. Yeah, that, it's a good opportunity yeah. to kind of sit him down and, and walk through sort of his backstory. <laughs> Let me pick your brain, Rush. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and he, of course, gets into the this the prison riot and all of that fun stuff. One of the great lines is like, "You think I'm stuck in here with you? You're stuck in here with me, Rachel. <laughs> Swear to me. Swear to me." Um, but just, but he's just so fun. Night owl, night owl, you got I'm in prison. Beans. <laughs> human bean, bean juice. juice. <laughs> You love the human bean juice. Line. I love it. Um, oh. But he's 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 fantastic to watch, and probably the most interesting character to see in the in the movie. Um, and he, you know, they have the breakout scene and all, and the breakout of the prison mm-hmm. scene where he goes and he's eventually the person at the end who deter- discovers that it's uh, uh, Adrian Veidt, the guy who Ozymandias, mm-hmm. one of the people who tries to restart the Minutemen as the Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Um, who's set a set in course this whole big mystery? He killed the comedian. He did, um, he did all of this, and he set he off, did all the things. He did all the things. Set off all these nuclear bombs or atomic bombs and all these separate cities to create world peace, so that the U.S. and the and Soviet Union would no longer be at war. They had a common enemy to fight against, mm-hmm. and he makes it so that it seems like it's Doctor Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Ozymandias, we don't get a lot of his backstory. We just learn that my parents were killed. I inherited all this money. I trying to make the world a better place. Um, and of course it's this whole, the symbolic thing of, uh, Ozzy, uh, I am Ozymandias look upon my works and ye in despair. I think that's the line. from Yeah. The poem. There, yeah. The whole, the it's Shelley, right? Percy yeah. Shelley. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you, you do that whole thing. And it, this is not, that's, uh, the, that's the heavy handed symbolism. Yeah, of, this this yeah. is an English lit class, so we're not going to yeah. kind of go into it, yeah. but my he, name is not Richard Glaser and I am not, I'm teaching your <laughs> English two class, you know? Yeah. Your, your English two Oh four. Yeah. Yeah. That, the, yeah. I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> that was my English two Oh four professor. Wait, wait. So I, yeah, you, you can, if you really want to kind of do a deep dive in that, you can obviously um, yeah. do that yourself. But yeah, the the point, Osmondeus was actually the, the, the Greek name for Ramses. Ramses is the second, And yeah. so you get that whole thing where, and he's surrounded by all of these, you know, ruins of, you know, the civilization. and he, His new Karnak he's building, yeah. It's all there. And um, it, it, it hits you over the head pretty hard. Um. 
I, I, I guess so we can kind of talk about the, the, the idea of, of that as an ending, which, which I, I like, um, because it does something that we kind of talk about wishing that more stories did, which is, you know, the best villains tend to be the ones who, um, don't actually see themselves as villains, villains, you know, and he kind of recognizes that what he's doing sucks. Um, he killed like 15 15 million million people, people, which is insane. Um, but it works. He's actually like correct in the sense of this is the outcome that he's sort of working toward. Um, and it works at least, you know, temporarily. I mean, we know that, you know, the cold war was going to just fizzle out at least in our reality. Well, Um, we also didn't have four terms of Nixon too. That's true. Yeah. I could, we didn't even get two terms of Nixon. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, we didn't have someone to assassinate Woodward and Bernstein. So, <laughs> you know, that would have helped. Uh, just nip that in the bud. Yeah. But it's it's it, he works really well as a character from that perspective. And it, and it works especially well in that he actually manages to convince several of the heroes well, yeah, he convinces at the end. I mean, the most important one is Manhattan. Dr. Manhattan of yeah. saying, like... Yes, I used you, but here's why. And look, it's working. And then yeah. Dr. Manhattan says, well, okay. <laughs> Dr. Manhattan's like, I am a golden god. And he jumps into a pool. <laughs> I'll um, kill my friend then, yeah. I guess. Well, and that's the whole thing is is you have this very um, utilitarian approach. It's very almost kind of 60 sci-fi in a lot of ways where it's the you main You kill char- 15 million to, to save, save, you know, 6 billion or however many there are in, you know, 1986. Yeah. Like probably like four billion or whatever, but the um yeah you have this utilitarian approach and this this thing where the characters through talking come to the realization that oh shit he's kind of right you know yeah. like this is this was the only way um that we could have done this but of course you have Rorschach who takes the the realistic hero approach of like no it doesn't matter if you did this you killed fifteen million people yeah, people have to know people have to know the truth mm-hmm. which. Dr. Manhattan then has to kill him, has to kill Rorschach because there's no other way that Rorschach can exist in this new world. This this utopia right. that that Ozymandias has created. He has to kill him. Yeah, and it's a lot it's a lot of ways it's about this idea that, you know, that world is over, right? The yeah. world of masked heroes. The and world of Rorschach yeah. is over and Rorschach can't live it get get rid of it. I mean he's He's this relic, you know, walking around, like, trying to still, you know, trying to act like it's this well, he's still, same world, like, nothing's changed. And obviously, still, everything's changed. He still has to be Rorschach. He has to bring the, the, the villain in. He has to bring Ozymandias in. That's, like, yeah. that's his purpose. He has to bring the bad guy in. But he's not allowed to do that anymore. Not in this new world. Not in this utopia. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, as the, the newspaper guy at the end of the year, at the end of the... At the end of the movie, says it's like the U.S. and Soviet Union are getting along. There's nothing to write about, you know. Yeah, it's like there's no conflict anymore. There's no without conflict, you can't have story, and then that's the whole point: is that the story is over. You can't have this conflict anymore. You can't. It's, it doesn't matter. Rorschach has to die. It's it's kind of it's it's interesting, and they they did similar approach in in the comic. The main difference in the comic is that. Uh, Ozymandias, instead of creating these nuclear bombs and blaming on Dr. Manhattan, has all these scientists that he's gradually been kidnapping throughout the the storyline create this giant squid monster that attacks the <laughs> right. world 
and then that yeah. unites all of the all of the planets against a common enemy that doesn't really exist. Right. It's interesting. It's an interesting approach. Um, I kind of, I, I know it's blasphemous, but I kind of like what they did in the movie a little bit better. Well, how were they actually going to have an enormous, Miss. I mean, it wasn't going to work. It was going to look silly. Yeah, no, I completely you know, agree. Just yeah. giant tentacles coming out. I mean, I remember it from the page because yeah. it's several pages of just tentacles on buildings, you know, and blowing yeah. stuff up. And it's like, that was just silly. Yeah, it was very, very silly. But that said, the way the the fact that fifteen million people died, and you really didn't see it, you saw mm. like eight people die. Yeah, you saw the big blue ball appear yeah. in I think New York. It was supposedly like four no, different was, cities. That was New York with the, the one that we really see. Yeah, because that it, was the last one. If you look on the screen, goes. Yeah. yeah, it kind of goes. And a couple of people zapped, and then that was it. And That's you get it was. to see yeah. sort of the rubble briefly yeah. in New York when they're kind of standing in it. But Interesting choice made also is that the Twin Towers are still standing. No. They specifically show the buildings oh, that Twin really? Towers are still standing, yeah. No, you do not at all get a sense of that devastation. You yeah. don't get a sense of that loss from this movie. That's true. So yeah. I think that it's fine that they went the way that they were going to go, swapping out, um, you know, nuclear weapons makes more sense than a giant squid monster anyway. Oh, Sorry. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it just makes more sense. It's it's more thematically appropriate. Oh, oh absolutely. A giant squid comes out of nowhere and makes no sense. Um, but you still don't. It's, it would have been so easy to just show that more and make that loss feel greater yeah but i think maybe they realized i mean i'm just taking a stab at it if they had lingered on that too much it would have been less believable that you're supposed to kind of recognize that ozymandias is right the fact that we were so removed from it we're like yeah 15 million people that's probably fair like <laughs> that's what you're supposed to say i guess at the end of it yeah. Um, unless you take the Rorschach approach, but I don't know. It, it's, it's, you're left in this weird, it's kind of, yeah, it, it just didn't, it, it, it did not work. Well, yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like a lot of like the, the utilitarian, uh, movies of like the fifties and sixties with, uh, like there was one, I can't remember the name of it right now. And I wish I could, cause you, you just, you talking about that reminded me and it's a movie about an accidental nuclear launch against Moscow. Hmm. And they, uh, the U.S. accidentally nukes Moscow. Accidentally. And so in retaliation, Moscow is allowed to nuke New York City. So they, they send the, the missile over and the main character, his wife, is like, who has to make this decision? His wife's in New York City. And so he has to make this utilitarian decision. And you can see the gripping reality that he has to face in making this decision because it's either nuke New York City or the world goes into nuclear war. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what this is. But yeah, once I, I do agree with you is that we don't see that. But I don't know if we necessarily have to because we don't really focus on the world as a whole. We're only caring about these characters. Like and what these characters and we all know that their their methods don't really have to do with real true altruism. They have they're all so selfish mm. of characters that doesn't matter. It's not about what the world is. It's how they see what's going on. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, it does. But I agree with you that but, like yeah, but, also as the viewer, mm -hmm. yeah. But I mean, we I think we're supposed to focus on just these these five guys that are in this room. It's just yeah. it's so 
set up that the world is at stake. Yeah. And the fact that the world gets saved and all we have is like someone telling another, you know, a character we've never seen telling another character we've never seen. <laughs> um, oh, hey, yeah, everyone's the, at peace now. Well, next er- everything worked. <laughs> oh, Henry, it's going to be a great day. <laughs> it's just... It's very. It's the president all, Moscow was on the Yeah, it's all. You. It's all yeah. build up to that, and then it's like, well, okay, all those people died. Oh well, now everything's cool. Okay, <laughs> it ended. Uh, we're gonna get back in our spaceship, and we get back in our owl and fly back. <laughs> and we're then Sally sex in the owl, <laughs> and then Lori's gonna go make up with Sally. It's gonna be a good day. <laughs> <laughs> Come gather round, people, wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are changing Production notes. Hey. So this wasn't actually the first uh, draft of Watchmen. The drafts of Watchmen. Watchmen was supposed to be made into a movie as early as 1988 by Terry Gilliam. Hey. He initially decided that he he was trying to make it happen. Uh, eventually decided after numerous drafts that it was unfilmable. Yeah. He couldn't do it. Um. Then in the early probably t- true in 1988. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. And then as early as uh, 2001, they tried getting this done through multiple drafts. Um, it eventually passed through a couple different hands. And then when Zack Snyder did 300, they saw what he was capable of doing with the work, with Frank Miller's work. And they said, well, we're going to get, would you be willing to do this? And after a certain amount of time, he, I think it was like two weeks, he said, yes, I'll do it. Because he, he read through the comics and was like, this is amazing. We could do this. Um, this draft, I believe, of the of the comic uh, of of the script was done. I wish I had it right in front of me. I do not have it in my notes right now, and I apologize. Ah, uh, damn it! But the dra- this was this was actually one of the early original drafts. This there was mm. there was uh, a couple earlier rewrites, and this was basically a full adaptation of the story. Of course, with the ending as the, being the main change. However, even in the Terry Gilliam script from the 1980s, the ending was changed originally, so that. Dr. Manhattan, in seeing what has happened, realizes that the only true way to to stop this from happening actually goes back into his own timeline and prevents the Watchmen from even happening. Mm. And so, basically, um, when time reasserts itself, the Night Owl, uh, Sally, uh, I'm sorry, Lori, uh, uh, Dr. Manhattan, they all end up in Times Square where they find out that the Watchmen is just a comic book. Oh, and so dear. it becomes kind of a meta ending on Ugh. the whole thing. I know. That's Ugh. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> I do not. I don't like that at all. I don't want any meta ending. <laughs> I don't need it. Um, yeah, all the main... And it was uh, nothing really crazy in terms of, of casting or any, or any kind of important news like that. Um, however, one of the more interesting things is that this movie was very, very divisive when it came out. It's... 
still is. It was only it's only sixty four percent on Rotten Tomatoes, hmm. um, which is fairly interesting because Rotten Tomatoes. You know, when you're getting towards the 64, I mean, I think 64 is not fresh any... I, I think you have to be... What is it? Over 80 to be fresh? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, might be a little lower than that, but yeah, I, I think that's definitely getting close to, to The 50% fresh. mark. Um, I know domestically at the box office, it did not actually make its budget, but overseas it did through course sales and all that stuff. Sure. Um, it was actually considered a failure when it came out, even though it, it did fairly well and opened up at number one on the box office and last there for a couple weeks. You want to do our, our recast first or our top three? Is that your Terry Gilliam voice? <laughs> yes. Um, so as, as I mentioned in the, in the previous section, we talked about um, we, t- we talked about the Terry Gilliam did a 1988, tried to make a draft of this in 1988, which I believe was just after Baron Munchausen or Brazil? Uh, I think I, it was Baron Munchausen. Yeah, Brazil was 85. Yeah, Baron um, Munchausen would have been there for that. Probably right around that time. Probably 88. Probably yeah. like right around the time that this would have happened. And this so. would be pre-Fisher King. Yes, which yeah. is 91. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, for our recast, um, I know Kevin didn't know about the Terry Gilliam version, but I wanted to, let's say, if Terry Gilliam did do his 1988, 89 What might it his, have looked like? What might it have looked like? Now, I only did, I didn't do a super ton of cast. I did our, our main did characters. Maybe the main cast, yeah. That's about it. Okay, so so um, who you want to go with first? Uh, the order that I wrote them in is, um, we've got our comedian. Okay, who'd you, who'd you put as your comedian? Um, my comedian. I, I'm hoping we don't have a ton of crossover. Uh, maybe. I mean, we talk about how how some directors have a deep bench and some don't. Yeah, um, he doesn't have. He a super does it, deep but bench, only no. because he hasn't really done that many movies. I mean, he, has a, he did a decent amount of movies. He wrote more than he directed. Certainly. Oh yeah. Um, I have. I mean, if you're in rewatching this, actually, it made me a little less assured of my choice because it was like, ooh, do I really want to see this? But uh, uh, if you're gonna have a character named the comedian, and we know some, we know that he can do the drama. I went with Robin Williams. Okay, very yeah. interesting. Very, very interesting. And now you you wanted him for the comedian. Yeah, you you, uh, you like that. All right. So my uh, my comedian was someone who worked with with. Uh, with with Terry Gilliam in Brazil, and I went with Bobby D. Yeah, yeah. I knew you were gonna go. I, I <laughs> as soon as I remembered that he was in Brazil. Well, I didn't remember it. I actually saw it on IMDb, and I was, <laughs> oh yeah, oh my god, of course, because it's been great, a little great while character since I've in seen Brazil too. A little while yeah. since I've seen, and he looks really good for the part. But I know. And I was like, no, I don't want to change it though, because I know you're gonna do it. That <laughs> and do Robin it. and and uh, Robert De Niro was in every single one of our movies yeah. that we recast. I, I, hard, well, we Bob- almost need a moratorium, I think, for 
for like the next several movies. We need to oh, not no put more Bobby D. Bobby De Niro in any movies for like the next like five movies. Oh, maybe we'll maybe I'll think about it. Maybe <laughs> maybe if I make a conscious choice on that. All right. Well, who did you do next? Uh, my Rorschach. Yeah. Uh, since he's gonna wear a mask I went with most Robert of the De Niro. time. <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna wear a mask most of the time. It almost didn't matter. Uh, but I went with Jeff Bridges. Oh, interesting. Okay. Keeping the, the, the Fisher King alive. Fish, keeping the Fisher King alive. Um, it, that's great. I For my Rorschach, I went with Robin Williams. <laughs> 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 no, I, I, I did. Yeah. Rorschach no. Diary. Human <laughs> 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 <Keep it> bee juice. <laughs> Rorschach Journal. Some bean juice all over. <laughs> Wow, uh, no, um, but it, the only, okay. So this is the reason I went with with uh, with uh, with Robin Williams is actually Robin Williams was attached to Terry Gilliam's 1988 script as um, as Rorschach. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm almost All right. Yeah. So you were you were pulling in the uh, I, I was I was the doing inside yeah. knowledge on that a little one. bit on that it's one. Okay. All right. Yeah. So that probably would have been would have would have happened, and it would have been weird. You know what? I don't know 100, percent but I think that's how I remember it in my head. So I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Who'd you do next? My Ozymandias. Yeah. It's Jonathan Price. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, he just looks the part. He he looks perfect. Yeah, and this is this is the one where I'm uh, I'm I feel bad about pulling this guy in because he's he would be so young at this point but i i mm. i went late i went i went uh i went and pulled in brad pitt oh hmm. yeah working at 12 monkeys i was just like yeah I, I know it's early and i know we like late he's 80s pretty young but i suppose he could do it i mean he, yeah. he was certainly a, a good enough actor and he was he was working at that point i mean what what's what's your late 80s brad pitt look like i the earliest i can actually think of is uh um not natural born killers, but uh, true romance. Well, that was early nineties. I know it's like I don't even know if it, I don't even know if this will work, but I it was the only one I could really think of. He was the one I had the hardest time casting. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, he he was. I mean, he was still doing some TV stuff at that point. You know? But Jonathan Price is a great pick because you know that ending shot in in Brazil where he's wearing the wingsuit. He's yeah. doing like that. That's like that's it right there. Yeah. That's Ozymandias. That's like yeah. your shot right there. He he, he looks. He, he would he would look really good as, as the part. I mean, it, it would be believable. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Um, <laughs> so my Doctor Manhattan was a little a little tough. He was actually the one I had the hardest time with. Oh yeah. Um, and I think we talked about him last time. I don't think we talked about him on the podcast. We might have talked about him afterward. Um, uh, my Doctor Manhattan is Eric Idle. <laughs> <laughs> Just look at him in Munchausen. Uh, you can see it. Uh, you can see it. Well, you know he's going to be walking around in sort of the makeup, and he's going to be, you know, blue. He, 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 could, he could do it. Uh, okay. Kevin. It would be very bizarre. I, I, I went the exact opposite of that, and I did Bruce Willis as my... Uh, <laughs> As as my Doctor Manhattan. Oh, okay. Because yeah, I didn't think to go as far forward in time as as Twelve Monkeys. I was really looking at Brazil through like Fisher King. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 not super far. Like, uh, I mean, ninety five. I think. Yeah. It was, yeah. It's, it's not too far out. Ballpark. But yeah. It's around the ballpark. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I went with Bruce Willis just because the bald head just kind of reminded me of it. And sure. B- b- some blue Bruce little, Willis. He still had a little Johnson hair hanging out at that yeah. point. But that's the yeah. same year as Die Hard. I mean, and his acting doesn't have to be that good. 
because, as we all know, Billy Crudup didn't do that great. <laughs> he just kind of looked off into the distance and talked in a monotone voice for about 45 minutes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. All of the world is no much better than the grain of sand that we see on the beach. Like sand through the hourglass, these are the days, days of, of our, our lives. lives. Get if it? Only time you, references again. If only you could see through my eyes, and I could see through yours. Oh my God! <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm blue, and I'm blue. I promise all together. I'm all right, you'll like <laughs> you'll like my night owl. Who's your night owl? My night Working owl. On your night owl. Talking about how he's a little doughy. Yeah? Supposed to have been out of the game for a little while, but he's going to squeeze back into those tights for one more rendezvous. Jim Broadbent. Nice! <laughs> he's a li- he, well, I guess in the early 80s, right. he wouldn't he, be that old. No, I mean, he, he was starting to look a little old, because he's in Baron Mon- Munchausen, yeah, and yeah. he looks a little old there. He doesn't have a huge part, and he's the weird doctor, or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, I forgot yeah, his yeah. name, but... Uh, He's supposed to be a little bit older. That's an interesting one. You know? Because I always think of Jim Broadbent, like, nowadays. And, like, sure, you got to remember right. that we'd be thinking, you know, 25 years earlier. Yeah. So I, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Okay. I get it. I get it. That That's where I, I went with my uh, with my Jeff Bridges. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That is, is my is my night owl. He's like, a little more Patrick Wilson-y. So he's yeah. a little bit closer to kind of what we have now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know. Like, Terry Gilliam is one of those guys who's, like... He went through a span in the 80s to 90s that was just, like, one great movie after another. Um, after the 2000s, he kind of went... Mm-hmm. But, um, man, Fisher King is a great movie. Mm. <laughs> one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's just... It's so... It's it's such a sad, melancholic movie that's just amazingly done. Um, Who would you put for your uh, Miss Jupiter? Or, or your so, Lori Jupiter? Yeah, my, 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 my Silk Spectre 2, I guess, is what she's actually supposed to be called. Um, this one was tough because he really didn't work with that many women, especially not during that time, especially not age-appropriate women. Um, but we do have a young Uma Thurman. That's who I went with, yeah. too. There are not that many choices. <laughs> no, there's not. Um, and she would probably work best at that point. Yeah, she was appropriate, borderline inappropriate. But well, no, she was know. borderline inappropriate in Baron Munchausen. Now, <laughs> at this point, she'd probably be appropriate. Yeah. Um, and I actually, for uh, Silk Spectre, won her mom. I said Mercedes Rule. <laughs> so did I. I wasn't sure if we were going to talk about it, but so did I. Uh, I was going to skip over her, but yeah, yes. yeah, from that, big from yeah, I and was, last action hero, yeah. I was going to say from the Fisher King, where she won the Academy Award. Yes, right. <laughs> For Best Supporting Actress. And, uh, yeah. All right, so we're going to do our top three now. 
Yeah, your um, your idea it was a good idea. It has nothing to do with this movie except um, for the jarring soundtrack that is yeah, in, in the Watchmen. But, you know, but it doesn't even happen. Can, you know, can we take a second just to talk about the soundtrack on this movie and how terrible it is? It, it's not that it's terrible. It's, it's very bad. It's it's inappropriate. It's inappropriate. Thank you. It's not a bad soundtrack because the the songs aren't bad. No, the music just not don't bad. belong. They there. just don't belong there. The I'll give you the Bob Dylan one. Yeah, in the, the beginning because for the use of what they did and for the mon. Montage yeah. and what the what they were getting at um, the times they were changing. We're looking at an alternate reality, and then we're also seeing, you know, historical events, you know, through this lens. Great, great, really great, um, really well executed. Eh, a little cornball at times, but super fun to watch. Oh, incredibly fun to watch. Um, Best part of this movie. But when the characters are reuniting and she walks into the restaurant and ninety nine Luft- Luft- balloons starts playing, and then. They're flying and they're about to do the big confrontation, and all along the watchtower starts playing. And then, of course, yeah, the we, aforementioned yeah. Leonard Cohen yeah. love scene. So the worst things I've ever seen. So this this came to to me. Uh, normally, Kevin picks the top three. Um, but I know yeah, I hadn't even thought were, of it. I'm glad some, that yeah. you 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 jumped in. So those who are unaware, we had some massive amounts of loss in the, in the mm-hmm. artistic world. Um, we we've lost, you know, Alan Rickman. We've we've lost, and now and we have also lost David Bowie. Right, um, that who, one hurts. I'm I'm still in a state of disbelief about that. Uh, yeah, and we uh, and of course uh, David Bowie makes an appearance in this movie in in that opening. I mean, not scene. literally, but someone's yeah. playing David, David Bowie. Bowie. So in the early seventies, uh, I shot off that we would um, talk about our top three Bowie songs used in movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm thinking that we're going to have one that's going to cross over, probably. But I think the other two, I, I'm almost positive you don't have I on think your so. list. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so, all right, go I, ahead I, with I, your. Start, we're we're both huge Bowie, Bowie fans. fans. It's it's one of the few. Yeah, artists that I think we both actually like and can agree on. I like Bowie up to Let's Dance. After that, I could take him or leave him. In all yeah. honesty, yeah. Um, I, I would recommend Black Star, especially in light of the news yeah. that's come out. Sure. And but uh, I, it's overall not one of my favorite albums. Agreed. You you yeah. you can. Uh, I mean, I think it's very good. Um, and I even liked his last one before that. The next day, I liked it for the most oh, part. The it Tilda was Swinton's it was very solo album. <laughs> it was uh, mixed. It wasn't as consistent as this one is. This this one is very consistent. Um, yes. And it's, yeah. It's got some some good ones, some not so good ones, but on, on top of that. Um, so my number three one is from a pretty obscure movie. Um, let me let me pull up my list really quick. I'm sorry. Uh, it's a 2001 movie uh, called A Knight's Tale. <laughs> have you, have you, do you remember this movie? Uh-huh. With Heath Ledger. With Heath Ledger. Uh-huh. Um, this movie was pretty interesting because it was a, basically a retelling of Chaucer's A Knight's Tale from the Canterbury Tales. And they used modern music in it, kind of like in a weird Moulin rouge kind of way. Mm-hmm. It was kind of on that bandwagon. I don't know if it was before or after that. But they actually used Golden Years in uh-huh. a dance sequence. And I just remember that. And I don't know why it's still my favorite. But I think it's because if, even after all this time and me not seeing this movie for going on probably 13 years, I remember that sequence. And I remember mm-hmm. hearing Golden Years, and it stuck with my head. 
And I don't know why, but I absolutely still love it to this day. And I rewatched it on YouTube in preparing for this. And it, it, I was just like, oh, this is still pretty good. I like this. And it's, it's sort of a weirdly likable movie. Yeah. Um, and I think it's all Heath Ledger. It's Well, no, it's got a really good cast. It's got Heath Ledger. It's got Mark Addy, Rufus Sewell, uh, uh, Shannon Sosasman, who doesn't show up in anything anymore. Paul Bettany. It's like got mm. a great cast in it. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, what, what's your number three? So my number three is uh, you don't actually hear David Bowie in this, but you do see his quotes uh, a, a quote of his lyrics at the beginning of the film um, that I think does a great job uh, of setting up the movie. Um, while another song is playing, oddly enough, um, the uh, lyrics that are quoted are from the song Changes in the beginning of The Breakfast Club. Uh, nice. um, yeah, I mean, maybe a little bit of a cheat because he's not actually, his song isn't actually there. But I'll give it to it's you. It's one of those moments that, and I remember, it was actually funny because I remembered catching up with that movie again when I was in college. Came up in came out in 1985 and I'd seen it as a kid, but I... Um, and I'd seen it in high school, and then I kind of caught up with it again in college. Um, either rented it or it was on television or something like that. And um, my roommate and I were watching it, and Bowie's lyrics appear at the beginning. We were like, "Why? We didn't. None of us. Neither of us remembered that at <laughs> all." And it does a really good job of framing that story and speaking at something, even though it was, you know, a fifteen-year-old song. I think at that point, yeah, almost. It was, yeah, it was like. <laughs> 12 or 15 years old. Breakfast Club came out, what, 85? And that was on Hunky Dory, so 71. So almost 15 years old at that point, but it still, you know, managed to speak up to the movie, which, of course, gets at, you know, how the movie continues to be relevant. Probably, Hunky Dory, I've gone on record saying Hunky Dory is my favorite album of all time, and it's, it's probably one of the two best songs off that album yeah um and it's the very first song yeah lets you know what you're in for yeah exactly um my number two is uh, from the movie walk hard a dewey cox story <laughs> um it's when he sings space oddity uh-huh. it is one of my uh, that's space when he sings starman oh, okay one of my favorite moments of all times he sings this disco version of starman and it's if you're not familiar with Walk Hard, watch it because it's the most ludicrous it's movie re- of all it's time. Really funny. Um, of course, a a, a complete send up of the Johnny Cash movie. Um, what was the movie name that? Walk the line. Walk the line. Mm-hmm. A send up of that, and it's kind of showing Dewey and this like late '70s variety show that he does, and he's singing Starman, and he's singing it in this weird disco sort of style, and he's dressed up like an astronaut, and it perfectly kind of summarizes how people saw david bowie's music who weren't like david bowie fans like they didn't understand like glam rock and like the counterculture like 70s heroin chic new mm-hmm. york movement and this is like and he's a star man <laughs> in the sky. he's got this southern accent he's singing i love it absolute great juxtaposition <laughs> of this of this song that is not what they are singing about and like how people interpret it it's just fantastic <laughs> Nice. What's your number two? Uh, my number two is I uh, actually learned a little something about as I was researching it because I did not realize that it, the scene was a reference to this exact same song used in the exact same way in a different movie. Um, the song is Modern Love uh, yeah. as used in Noah Baumbach's 2013 movie, Francis Ha. <laughs> you love Francis Ha. It was my favorite movie of 2013. It's let's one just, of my favorite movies of the decade let me so just far. Tell everyone on the podcast, everyone who's listening, Kevin is in love with Greta Gerwig. I am. And <laughs> he it's can't true. help it. It's true. 
It's something that Noah and I have in common. Um, She's my muse. Which I actually didn't realize that. So this is a scene. In, so in the scene in, in Francis Hodge, she's kind of, you know, she's this emotionally like incapacitated, you know, stunted adult. And she's trying to deal with the fact that like all of this stuff in her like dumb, meaningless, meaningless, you know, white you know, millennial like life in New York is spiraling out of control. She doesn't have the capacity to sort of deal with the things that are happening to her. And so all she can kind of do is there's sort of this emotional kind of crescendo where she's just running through the streets of New York and it's, it's shot in black and white. And so she's running through the streets of New York while modern love is playing. And she's just yeah. like flailing her arms. Well, I didn't realize that it was a fun scene and it wouldn't made my list. But what I didn't realize is that, um, that was actually a reference to uh, a 1986 Leo Carax movie, which I've never seen and don't know anything about other than... Mm-hmm. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you, you're not allowed to do that or I'm not doing this podcast with you anymore. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, it's a movie it, with a French title that I'm going to completely <laughs> screw up called Mauvais Sang. It means bad blood. I don't know okay. anything about this yeah. movie. I've never seen a Leo Carax movie, which I'm ashamed to say a little bit. But It's okay, neither have I. <laughs> I've heard of the man... That's about as far as I've gotten. Um, but it's a very similar, it's exactly the same way. It's the same song and it's yeah. the same thing where he's running through the streets of Paris and he's even doing carpet. And in, in that movie, it's because he's, you know, in love with the, the, the female protagonist or whatever, the, the, the girl in the movie. The it's love a French interest movie. In the movie. Of course he's in love with her. Right. And he's in love yeah. with her and he just can't sort of express it. So this is what he does is he runs through the streets while modern love plays. And it's a very cool Scene and idea, right? It's a very cool idea, and then to have it show up again in this very sort of liberal but also very strict um, interpretation of it, I thought was very cool, and I thought it was a good Bowie tribute. Yeah, well, I had no idea about the about the other movie. (laughs) I uh, didn't either. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so our number one, our number one (laughs) is of course from the 2004 movie (laughs) Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Am I correct? It is actually two songs from there because I wanted to combine. I wanted to include them. I just I just included the whole soundtrack. I was going to say the number one is obviously the life on Mars. Right on the on the bow of the of the boat moment. But I also love the ending. I'm glad you waited. I'm glad you waited for number one so that we could do it together with Queen Bitch. Oh, Queen Bitch is great. Yeah, it ends with that. But of course, there's the the Portuguese song. Oh, oh, yeah. Like, Seo, Jorge. I know yeah. I'm not going to say I that just, right either. I think it's either. just Seo George. I think that's what he goes. I don't think oh, he goes okay. by Jorge. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, uh, I, I would have felt bad saying that and just being like, I don't know how to pronounce uh, <laughs> Spanish names. Yeah, but, yeah Portuguese. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're the two kind of key. It, I almost feel like, and I think you might have said this back in 04 when we saw <laughs> this, like, it's almost as if, like, those moments were thought of first, and then Wes Anderson sort of wrote the movie to, <laughs> to justify those scenes. Yeah, I mean, just like so. Okay, so you know, Kevin's a huge Wes Anderson fan, obviously, G- gigantic Wes Anderson. I just fan. went off talking about <laughs> Francis Ha, uh, Francis Ha, and uh, and French movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really, and this is honestly one of my favorite of his movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's because it's a story about men. It's a manly man story. Mm. Um, and the the whole basis of the soundtrack is it's Seu George. I, I'd probably sing. It's probably, maybe it might be Jorge. I don't know. But I'm just going to say Seu George is this um, poor, he, he was in City of God, I think, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he comes on, he's on this crew of this kind of, you know, uh, um, sea explorer ship mm-hmm. and he has basically just an acoustic guitar and all of the music is 
is David Bowie covers. He's just playing these David Bowie covers and singing them in Portuguese or, you know, kind of like a mishmash of English and Portuguese. And they're these beautiful reinterpretations of his songs. Yeah, just, just kind a of, co- a, him and an acoustic guitar, just yeah. singing them in Portuguese. Yeah, sitting on, like, the bow of the ship or in, like, the mm-hmm. ship's recording studio because this is a Wes <laughs> yeah. Anderson movie. Right. And on the weird model ship that he built, there's a recording studio <laughs> inside the boat. Direct to the wax, you know, <laughs> yeah. somehow. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and he does Starman, he does Life on Mars, Oh, You Pretty Things, Changes, Rebel Rebel, um, Lady Stardust. Uh, Pretty much all Hunky Dory and uh, and Ziggy Stardust yeah, songs Space Odyssey. for the most part. Oh uh, yeah, he does do Space Odyssey. That's out of T. Oh, and Search and Destroy. No wait, does, he does, I don't think no, he, does, he doesn't. That's he just does, in no, the movie because that's, movie, that's yeah. when he's with the pirates when yeah. he's fighting the pirates. Yeah, and it's just this this amazing soundtrack that you just like. It it really it's one of those things that if you're familiar with Bowie's music or like you're just like oh yeah I know David Bowie and then you listen to this you're like. Oh shit! Those songs are really, really beautiful songs. Yeah, and it, the the any way you interpret them is is just as beautiful. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to include a, a a honorable mention on mine is Cat People from Inglorious yes! Bastards. And, and I and as soon as I saw, I had to rewatch that scene, and I was like, oh, Joe's maybe gonna put this on his list. The only reason I don't is because very much like Watchmen, it is in a completely jarring scene that does not need to be in that movie. Mm. And it's just so cool though. It's very cool, but it's yeah. just like why is this song that was written in what, like seventy nine, eighty in this movie about World War Two? It just doesn't make any sense yeah, to me. I mean, and I'm okay with that. The the You're... sort of anachronistic part of it, but yeah, it, it would have helped if there was like one or two other instances of that exactly. in that movie that it's would have helped frame it a little better. Really, really bizarre one on there. Yeah. But that's, the, that's the one I wanted to include as my uh, as my honorable mention. Also, honorable mention the entire soundtrack to Labyrinth. I was gonna. I was just about yeah. to ask you anything from Labyrinth because see, for me, for the most part, honestly, as much as I actually love Bowie in that movie, like his songs are kind of my least favorite part Talking about of the Labyrinth. Babe. Um, I think it's a really fun family movie of fun, you know, great Henson, you know, characters. Come with me. (laughs) I can't do Bowie. My Bowie always turns into um, Dr. Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror (laughs) Pictures. How are you doing there? (laughs) I just, I mean. Sweet transsexual. Some of the songs are fine in the movie, but I mean, yeah, they're not my favorite Thing. No, and it's, it's cute, but it's not the best. And we had talked about like Bowie in the movies, um, but yeah, yeah, he's a pretty terrible actor. With There's the exception of, his... of like The Hunger, that's like the only movie yeah. that he's pretty decent in. And it's only because like Bauhaus is playing in the background, as if everyone has seen. So it distracts from him being in the movie. I mean, I liked him in <laughs> Trainwreck. I liked him in Snowpiercer. Um, <laughs> I liked him a lot in. Uh, you know the the what's the when he played uh, Orlando? <laughs> um, no, that's those are Tilda Swinton movies.
right, so let's talk about Watchmen as a movie. Yeah, does it work as does a movie? Does it work movie? as a movie? It works fantastic as a comic book. As I say, people always talk about it being like the mm-hmm. greatest comic book of all time. Narrative-wise, uh, it's beautiful. Does it? Is it? I will say this. This is a pretty faithful adaptation of the comic. Mm-hmm. Um, with the exception of the ending, as we talked before. I think there are a lot of subplots, of course, that are missing from it that really would have helped it. But I don't think that they added anything that wasn't in the comics into the movie. And the stuff that they kept out, I don't think necessarily hurt it. Yeah, I it's it's very episodic. You yeah. can get a sense of where the issues kind of stopped and started um, and where those breaks were because there's long sections where you're just following Rorschach around. Yeah. And then there's long sections where it's like, like all of a sudden we're watching it and his voiceover started again. And it was like, Oh right. Yeah. That's a, that's that's a a device used in this movie. Like I had forgotten because he was out of the movie for, you know, 15 minutes. Yeah. I think that's a big problem is that movie, the movie, because of how they frame the backstories, mm-hmm. it becomes more of an anthology than an yeah. actual movie. It's too much just like, oh, okay, oh, oh, now it's time to talk about, Doctor, you know, this yeah. character's it's backstory. Like, it's almost like jazz, where it's like, okay, now it's time for this guy's solo. A <laughs> <laughs> little bit, right. Yeah. And then you have you have Dr. Manhattan navel-gazing for a full 20 minutes on Mars telling his entire backstory, and you're just like, oh my God. Yeah. And I don't think it's... I think part of the problem with the backstory stuff is that they use narration as the device to tell the backstory for all of these people. And it's exhausting. It's far too much talking. Yeah. Very talky movie. And like the two people whose flow really suffers by trying to have the exact same flow as a comic book. They're two completely different mediums. Yeah. Um, And and that's and that's also the problem is like that Dan and and Lori are not don't really get their backstories. They don't, you don't get, like, you get it told kind of, like, like in passing. They don't get their actual narrative backstories, but you need their narrative backstories because those are the two people that you care, that you're supposed to care about. Like, they're right. kind of, like, the two main driving characters in this movie, and you don't get their backstories. And it's because their backstories are actually the backstories of the people that they took the roles over from, um, you know, Hollis Mason and, and Sally Jupiter. So you're kind of like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> It was a mistake to not choose one sort of framing device. If you were going to choose to stick with Rorschach and let him frame the whole movie through sort of his perspective and his investigation, that would have been fine. Yeah. Um, If you wanted to go with the Hollis Mason telling Patrick Wilson the story um, uh, uh, and and setting it up that way and letting that lead into these other, that would have been fine too. Yeah. If you wanted Sally Jupiter's mother to tell the story. I mean, there were there were all of these different things trying to happen simultaneously because it depends on what chapter of the story you're reading. Yeah. This is not a story you're reading. This is supposed to be a, a movie that you're watching. It's supposed yeah. to be its own sort of singular identity. And this is the this is the best is, you you mentioned this sort of earlier that this is the one of the greatest examples of why faithful adaptations of books onto screen are usually problematic. This is why filmmakers make the decisions that they make to change the thing that you love because the thing that you love works really well in that medium that you currently love it in. 
Yeah. It does not work as well in a completely different medium. And now, and this is one of those things that if this is really like a, a stereotypical thing to say, like, I really wish this was a, a miniseries on HBO where they could really tell the whole story. Yes, and, and that would have maybe helped. Yeah, but it, but the, once again, that's also like a really typical thing to say. Of course, we'd all love all of our stuff to be interpreted sure. in HBO. But no, this is a two-hour movie, three-hour movie. This mm-hmm. is a three-hour movie that we're getting for the screen. They had they should have made choices to really limit what was going to go up there mm-hmm. or change the way that it was. It was presented to us. I think the fact that we had multiple narrators telling multiple stories really hurt this movie it was exhausting to get through it's a slog um the i think in my personal opinion armchair quarterbacking it if they had taken dan's story as told with patrick wilson had him be the main character and find out this stuff from people kind of almost maybe in a citizen kane style way it might have been more interesting but the i don't but the fact that you're hearing the narrator tell from both dr manhattan comedian Rorschach, all these different people telling the story, it's hurt it hurts. Yeah. It 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 uh it hurts the movie as a whole. Yeah. I I don't know if you agree with me on that. I do. I, I completely. I, I think only to you know, you go through all of those different narrators only to kind of come to the end and you've got, you know, Ozymandias kind of standing there just explaining everything that we all already kind of knew. Um, and he's got to frame it in this sort of way. And then you're like, well, okay, well, I guess that's cool. Like it, all of that, everything that we were kind of driving towards just, I, I don't know. I just felt it, the it air kind of, go out of the movie yeah, it, at that it's, point. It, it slides to a halt on the, on a whoopee cushion is what it does. It just, <laughs> it just goes. <laughs> it, I mean, but it's, but there are some, there's certain good things. The movie is visually beautiful. I I think at least, yeah, beautiful is a strong word. I, it's it's fun to look at at times. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, I'm still pretty impressed. I by mean, it's not like a it's not a Vilos Forman movie. Okay, it's it's <laughs> but it's it's pretty, it's fun to look at. It's not yeah. this is not one flew over the cuckoo's nest or Amadeus. This is an interesting <laughs> comic book picture. Um, I wish it was more colorful for a comic book movie, but it's all in this weird like. Valencia 80s gray filter. I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 there were certain effects that were cool. Um, I liked, uh, I'm still pretty impressed by Rorschach's mask. I still think that was really cool. Um, I enjoyed that the first time I saw it. I enjoyed it again here. Bean Um, juice. It was neat. (laughs) Billy Bob Thornton might have made a good Rorschach. Yeah. Yeah, Mm, Potatoes. Yeah. I, I like a lot of the effects. I thought everything, kind of worked a little I didn't what I didn't like was I didn't like the Ozymandias um night owl silk specter kind of like latex leather jumpsuits very very Batman dark knight looking they were all yeah there was a lot of metal yeah there was a lot of like um Hard yeah it was plastic. a lot of right yeah. it was a lot of Nolan stuff and it was a lot of sort of um uh X-Men inspired yeah. as well yeah but I mean like but then you have like Rorschach and he looks awesome yeah it's just like it with the trench unique. coat very unique very noirish and uh on and it, i also i like the directing i like some of the shots that they did i mean none of it was groundbreaking none of them what snyder did was groundbreaking but i really liked the choices he made in at least the directing aspect like the shots he took from what angles he took 
Um, some in particular that I really liked. I really liked the birth of Dr. Manhattan, that whole sequence. Hmm. And, of course, the, the opening sequence, which we talked about before on the podcast, where they're playing um, Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the song called? The Times They Are Times That Are Changing. To the whole background. Like, that choice that they decided to use, I think, was amazing. It was like, it's... It's one of those times where it's like you're like watching this and you're like, if this is what this whole movie is going to be like, this is going to be amazing. But it's not. It, it will um, not be that. No. no. I mean, <laughs> it, it's a, it's, it is probably one of the greatest opening sequences I've seen in a movie in a very long time where I've just been like utterly enthralled by every mm. little frame of that. Um, I don't know if there's, if there's anything that uh, in, uh, specifically you wanted to, to speak to. I feel like the uh, the the weird horned tiger did not really get its due. Oh, um, Bubastis wanted a little bit more. Uh, uh, I, I wanted a lengthy voiceover backstory of the <laughs> acquisition of the tiger. Rawr. I hate Mondays and love lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh man, <laughs> it's Garfield's oh. voice. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh. I, I I don't have real strong feelings about this movie, to be honest. I don't have strong connections to the comic. I read it. I liked it. I got it. Yeah. Um, I wish I had had a chance to kind of sit and have read it first, because then I think it would have been a thing that I really liked, and I would have had a little bit more uh, invested in this movie. Might've. I probably would have been more disappointed. I Might've don't know. Could. But I think people generally are favorable on this movie for the most part i think it's mixed i don't think people love it but i think no. people kind of are satisfied for the most part with the adaptation that we have um for now yeah i think if in like even five more years if someone was to take another crack at this i don't think people would mind yeah um, nope. there might be some grumbling because it actually wasn't that long ago but grumble, that's not grumble, that grumble. that's not that weird now to to you know remake a yeah. movie after 10 or 15 years yeah i i think the the biggest mistake this movie made was the fact of it was too faithful an adaptation it was too much information yeah um they needed to narrow it they needed to streamline they decided is this a noir is this a superhero pick because it's both Mm-hmm. Is this a history movie? Is what is this alternate history? Is this speculative fiction? What is this? Right. I didn't feel like they really got a clear handle on what that is. Basically, what it is is an Alan Moore adaptation. Which, yeah. if you ever try to do that, it you're going to kick yourself in the ass. Look at every Alan Moore adaptation that we will eventually look at. Lead of Extraordinary Gentlemen from Hell. I mean, Oof. let's. Yeah, it's it's a it's a rough one. Um, <laughs> it's a long and winding road. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I really, I would, I would say that this movie is, it's interesting to watch, at least. The first time you watch through it, you're like, okay, where's this going? What's this doing? I like a lot of the history stuff. I like a lot of the personal stuff. And you know me, I don't normally like a lot of, like, personal backstory to characters, but at mm-hmm. least in this one, I felt like I knew, the, I, I was able to learn about the characters and I was able to understand at least their motivations. I think they could have done a better job with it, hands down. But at least they attempted to do that. Yeah. And we'll see how uh, Zack Snyder does on his new one in a few weeks. BVZ, BVS? Bats v. Soups. BVS? Bats oh, v. Man. Soups. Don Justice? You talking about Don Justice? D-O-J? BVS, D-O-J? Jesus. <laughs> Batman, Batman v. Superman. Bung, bung. <laughs> Hang him high, McCoy. Votes in favor of Batman. 
I don't, I don't. Do they vote? Do the judges vote? Is that what happens? I believe this is a uh, yeah. This is this is the people and Batman versus Superman. <laughs> oh, I'd like to file a uh, change of venue <laughs> to Gotham. <laughs> no, uh, I don't want to have to keep coming out here. <laughs> All right. So, what what would you give Zack Snyder's Watchmen, two thousand nine epic Watchmen? I am going to give it a C plus. That's exact grade I'm going to give it. Hey, yeah. look um, at that. I, I probably enjoyed this movie a little bit more than you did. Um, my C plus is basically visually entertaining, um, a very well done, well crafted visual movie. Um, the problems are have to do with the script and the adaptation. It's it's too rough. It's it's, it's messy. There's it's too messy, much going yeah. on. It doesn't flow very well. There's too much to try to keep track of. Yeah. Um, and that soundtrack is ridiculous. It is pretty bad. Um, I also want to say that I did enjoy the acting in it. I might even go up to a B minus because I really do enjoy majority of actors in there. And I think Jackie Earl Haley was is amazing in this. And why we don't have a Jackie Earl Haley Batman, I will never know. But, ah, yeah, That could be fun to watch. I, I would watch a full Rorschach movie with just Jackie Earl Haley eating beans. Eating beans. <laughs> fighting crime. <laughs> I'm all for Being that. Being a hobo carrying, carrying uh, signs. Carrying signs. <laughs> Getting bean juice everywhere. Human, Human bean juice. <laughs> All right. So go to planetarbitrary.com for your planet arbitrary needs. You can follow me on Twitter at planet arbitrary. You can follow Kevin at at K White says. Like the Facebook page backslash planet arbitrary. You can also like the uh, Facebook page of our sister podcast, Game Classy Podcast. And the Play On Podcast also has its own Facebook page. Best way you can help out the podcast is like, comment, and subscribe on iTunes for the Planet Arbitrary Podcast page. Um, once again, that's the way of getting our numbers up and getting the name out there. If you want to listen to us on an alternative platform, you can listen to us on YouTube. Um, we are on the Game Classy YouTube page as well as the Game Classy subreddit, our Game Classy. Mm. Um, so, Kevin, until next time. Man listens to podcast. Podcast is terrible. Podcast keeps making Simpsons references. Bean juice. Hired goons. Hired goons. Comic. Bullet. Logic. Logic. 